0: If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians. Hope that you are ready to study God's Word today. I'm ready to study God's Word with you. It's always a joy, one of the greatest joys of my life. It's to study God's Word with my church family. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is where we will be today. The title of our message is The Church, A Gathering of Gospel Worship. A Gathering of Gospel Worship. And we're going to begin by reading from God's Word these verses, verses 16 through 18. And so if you will, uh, just put your eyes on the text of Scripture in your Bible and uh, follow along as I read. This is the Word of God. Rejoice always. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Can you imagine, just for a moment, winning the championship and then going to the locker room and complaining about all the things that went wrong in the game and griping about your sore muscles and spewing negative comments about your teammates or the coach or the referees or even the fans there in the stadium? Can you imagine winning the championship and going to the locker room and and that's all you hear from the winning team? No, no. When you're victorious, you are consumed with celebrating. When you're victorious, you are consumed with celebrating. And everyone watching and seeing that celebration says, I would love to be on that team. That's what everyone watching in says, I'd like to be on that team right there. They, they, they are enjoying themselves because they are the victors. Church, the greatest victory in all of life has been won. By Jesus Christ. And we, those who have trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, who believed in Him, we are on that winning team. Christ has won the victory, and we, through faith in Him, get to be on that winning team. The question is does the world see us celebrating? Does the world see us celebrating? Or does the world see us with our heads hung low as though we were on the losing team? The church is to be a gospel light to the world. We are to attract people to Jesus. And one of the ways that we do that is by living lives of God-honoring worship, where it's obvious that we are on the winning team. Now, last week we saw that the church is a gathering of gospel relationships. And we looked at that in verses 12 through 15 of chapter 5. And there we learn that a healthy church is filled with members who strengthen the church by the way they relate to leaders and members and the world. But now in the next set of this kind of long string of commands, verses, really verses 16 through 22, we're going to see that the church is also a gathering of gospel worship, gathering of gospel relationships, and then a gathering of gospel worship. Now, today we're just going to study the first few verses of verses 16 through 22, which is what... Uh, the part that we read a minute ago, verses 16 through 18. And then, Lord willing, next week we'll study verses 19 through 22. Now, these three verses, verses 16, 17, and 18, teach us that a healthy church is filled with members who worship God with hearts transformed by the gospel. A healthy church is filled with members who worship God with hearts that have been transformed by the gospel. Worship begins in our hearts, then it does move outward into expressions of worship. But we cannot worship God on the outside if we are not worshiping him in our hearts. And we cannot worship him in our hearts unless our hearts have been transformed by the gospel. Now, you're not going to see the word worship in our passage today. However, the commands that we are given in these verses and in the verses that we're going to study next week, um, I think, I think really uh, describes some of the ingredients that go into proper worship. So if you think about how do I live a life of worship, these commands today and next week, these are essential ingredients to a life that is an an overflow of worship to the Lord. Not only individually in our lives, but I think also when we gather as a church. You can take these verses and you can apply them to your life on a day-to-day, moment-by-moment basis, and you can apply them to us when we gather as a church family. Worship is the attitude and act of ascribing ultimate worth to someone or something. That's what worship is. Whatever or whoever you worship holds the position of first place in your life. And it's obvious that this person or thing holds first place in your life because your attitudes and your actions reveal that to be the case. As Christians, we want people to see that Jesus is the one that we worship, so they'll be drawn to worship him as well. We want people to be able to see that Jesus is on the throne of our hearts. No one or nothing else. We must worship God then from hearts that have been transformed by the gospel because it's the only way that Jesus will sit on the throne of a heart that is sinful is if he changes that heart and transforms that heart through the good news that he has come, he has died, he has rescued us from our sin, he has risen from the grave. And I want to share with you four ways we're to worship God with hearts transformed by the gospel so that we can grow, we, want us to grow. we have a goal in this, not just to fill our minds with knowledge, but so that we'll grow in health as a church with the goal of shining brightly the hope of the gospel to a lost and a dying world. First, uh, first way that we can worship God that we see here in this passage is this. We want to worship God with a heart of continuous rejoicing in the gospel. We want to worship God with a heart of continuous, continuous, continuous rejoicing in the gospel. We're going to see that word continuous a lot today. Continuous rejoicing in the gospel. Verse 16 says, Rejoice always. That's the whole verse. Everybody should be able to go out of here today having memorized a verse of Scripture. All right? Rejoice always. Rejoice always. You you got it. If you can say rejoice always, you've memorized a verse of Scripture today. Rejoice always. This is a short verse that is loaded with significance for our lives as Christians. The root of the word rejoice is the word joy. And as Christians, we're to have an attitude that is characterized by joy. Now, sometimes we think that joy is um, the same as the emotion of happiness. But it's, it's not exactly the same as that. You see, when we think about happiness, especially that emotion of happiness, um, that's an emotion that we feel when good things happen. But the opposite emotion would be sadness or maybe anger, which sometimes are appropriate emotions that we would feel based on the circumstances that we're in. But joy is different. Joy is not a feeling of happiness dependent on our changing earthly circumstances. Instead, it is a settled state of unchanging peace And satisfaction and gladness that is rooted in the unchanging, this is important, the unchanging eternal circumstance that Jesus has paid the price for our sins and we are forever children of God. See the difference? Happiness is based on earthly circumstances that change. And so we sometimes are happy, sometimes we're not. Joy is rooted in the unchanging, eternal circumstance that Jesus has died for our sins and we are forever children of God. You see, joy transcends our temporary emotions because it's not determined by the temporary circumstances of life. Here's what that means. It means you can be joyful while you feel happy. And you can be joyful while you feel sad. You can be joyful while you feel disappointed. You can feel joyful Uh, Be joyful while you feel excited. You can be joyful while you feel exhausted. All that you can insert, any emotion that we may go through in life, you can be joyful in the midst of all of that. Joy is a permanent disposition of the heart placed within someone by the power of God transforming that person's heart through the gospel of Jesus. But notice here, the command isn't simply to have joy in you. That's That's not what the command is. The command is to rejoice. The command isn't just to have joy inside, but to rejoice. To rejoice means to express the joy that we have. Let it show in the way that we live. Believers in Jesus are to always be rejoicing according to this verse. Always expressing the joy that fills our hearts. In other words, it's not a hidden joy. It's not something that, oh yeah, I have joy, but you just can't tell. No, we're going to be able to... Uh, to show the joy that we have so that people can tell. It's one that works its way out in the way that we live and respond to the circumstances of life. Maybe you're listening to that and you say, Pastor, um, I, I, I get that, but don't you know that sometimes life is hard? Don't, don't you know that sometimes don't go, things don't go the way that I thought they would? Don't you know that sometimes it seems like evil is winning? Sometimes things happen that bring about feelings of anger or sadness or disappointment. Am I really supposed to rejoice in times like that? Well, the simple answer is yes. This verse says rejoice always. It doesn't leave any room for, for, for anything different there. Rejoice always. Now, remember the context of this command. Paul is writing to Christians who were facing persecution as a result of their belief in Jesus. Paul himself had to flee Thessalonica because of persecution. Look back in chapter 4, verse 4. Remember, he sent Timothy to them, chapter 4, verse 4, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. I said 4. You're confused. 3. Chapter 3, verse 4. I'm sorry. Chapter 3, verse 4. I'll start over. He sent Timothy to them to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it's has come to pass. And just as you know, he's not writing to Christians that everything's just going perfect in their life. And he says, rejoice always. He's writing to Christians who are in the middle of suffering affliction. So the command to rejoice always is be given to Christians who are living in this state where they're not going to feel an emotion of just happiness and thrill because of what they're going through. And yet they are to rejoice always. But here's a question. If there are earthly circumstances are not providing them reason to rejoice, then what is giving them reason to rejoice? And if we can understand what's giving the Thessalonians reason to rejoice, then maybe we can understand what would give us a reason to rejoice, even in the difficult times of life. And the answer is the word of the gospel of Jesus, which has transformed their hearts through the working of God's spirit in their lives. Now look back. I'll get it right this time. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. Just... Hop back there for just a moment. Remember, we don't want to forget what Paul has already wrote them in the letter because that provides the context for this command to rejoice always. This is, this is what we know of the Thessalonians. Paul writes there, uh, chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. They received the gospel of Jesus, this word of the gospel, in the middle of much affliction. And in the middle of much affliction, it overflowed with joy in their lives. And now Paul's commanding them, make sure that joy is not hidden. Rejoice always. We can also learn from Paul himself. The Apostle Paul was no stranger to deep suffering. He faced rejection and beatings and stonings and lack of food and shipwreck and wrongful imprisonments. And yet joy permeates his New Testament writings and rejoicing characterizes his response to these difficult situations. It's an incredible sh- short phrase that we find in the book of 2 uh, Corinthians. And Paul's letter there to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10. Paul described himself and other servants of God as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Paul's not denying the feeling of sorrow. He's not even saying that's bad or wrong. That we will walk through times of life where we are sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. His letter to the Philippians, which he wrote while he was in prison for being a Christian, in prison for being a Christian, he said this, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I will say rejoice. The Thessalonian Christians could rejoice always because of Jesus. Paul could rejoice always because of Jesus, and so can we. But here's a question for us. Do we? Do we rejoice always? Does the world look at your life, your attitude, your words? Your actions, your social media posts, your response to bad news or your response to difficult circumstances or your response to an unexpected change of plans. Or or, or can they look at what happens when we gather together and, and how we sing together and how we study God's Word together? how we fellowship together, how we gather. Can the world look at that and say, I'm not sure what it is about that person exactly, but he is always so joyful. She always seems to be rejoicing no matter what life throws at her. Can the world say that? Christian, we have been rescued from our sin, given eternal life with God and had the deepest longings of our hearts satisfied by Jesus. We ought always to be rejoicing. And yet, I know people who who would claim the name of Christ and yet who are always complaining about something or griping about this or that. And do you know what? Sometimes I join right in with them. Church, let it not be so of us. Let it not be so of us. Instead, may the songs of that great hymn be our anthem in every season of life. There's within my heart a melody. Jesus whispers sweet and low. Fear not, I am with thee. Peace be still. In all life's ebb and flow. All my life was wrecked by sin and strife. Discord filled my heart with pain. Jesus swept across the broken strings. Stirred the slumbering cords again. Feasting on the riches of His grace. Resting neath His sheltering wing. Always looking on His smiling face. That is why I shout and sing. Though sometimes He leads through waters deep, trials fall across the way. Though sometimes the path seems rough and steep, see His footprints all the way. Soon He's coming back to welcome me. Far beyond the starry sky, I shall wing my flight to worlds unknown. I shall reign with Him on high. And then you know that beautiful chorus, right? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Sweetest name I know. Fills my every longing. Keeps. Me singing as I go. It's not about the earthly circumstances around us. It's about the one who sits upon the throne of our hearts, who has transformed our hearts. It's about Jesus. And so we worship God with a heart of continuous rejoicing in the gospel. Secondly, we worship God with a heart of continuous praying through the gospel. We worship God with a heart of continuous praying through the gospel. Verse 17 says, pray without ceasing. I think we can walk out of here and have memorized two verses of Scripture today. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Verse 17, pray without ceasing. Now, if you're like me, you might stop and ask, now how in the world am I supposed to pray without ceasing? You know what without ceasing means. This command is to pray always. Pray nonstop. Keep on praying and don't ever stop. Well, let's first look at the command to pray, and then we're going to look at the extent to which we are to pray, that second part, without ceasing, always, continuously. Let's talk about prayer for a moment. Prayer is simply the channel of communication that God has given humanity to, 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 to talk with Him, to, to, to speak to Him. Prayer, it, the Shortest definition I can give you, it's talking to God. That's what it means to pray. It means talking to God. And yet that simple definition of prayer, along with this command, To pray continuously assumes a lot. It assumes that God can hear us when we speak to Him. It assumes that God wants us to speak to Him. It assumes we know Him well enough to speak to Him. It assumes that we are welcome in His presence to speak to Him. And it assumes that we know what to say when we enter His presence to speak to Him. There's a lot that goes into that command to pray. Now, we don't have time to talk about all of that. But without a doubt, Scripture does very clearly say that God does hear us when we pray, and that He wants us to pray to Him. It's very clear in Scripture. But really, one of the bigger questions is how can sinful humans know God and be known by God in such a way that He would welcome us into His presence to pray? We ought to read any command in Scripture to pray and go, I'm not worthy to do that. I'm not worthy to do that. How can we be welcomed into the presence of God? The answer is the gospel of Jesus. You see, our sin separates us from God. Go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were kicked out of God's presence when they sinned. And every uh, human since then, except for Jesus, has been born into this world in that same state of separation from God that Adam and Eve found themselves in after they were kicked out of the garden. Now, in the Old Testament, God revealed that sinners could speak to Him If they did so through offering a sacrifice as a substitute sin bearer, God would view that slain animal as having taken their guilt and punishment and then would allow the then forgiven sinner to come before him in prayer. You see, this is only a temporary setup. It wasn't permanent because the blood of an animal cannot actually atone for the sin of a human. It was obvious that the Old Testament sacrificial system wasn't enough because sacrifices had to be continually made and only the high priest could enter into the innermost part of the temple, which symbolically was where God dwelled. And he could only do that one time a year. Now, God gave this incredible visual um, barrier to help us understand how we are different from God and are not allowed into his presence. They are separating that innermost part of the temple from the rest of the temple, that inner room where God's presence dwelt, where only the high priest could go in only one time a year by offering all the right animal sacrifices. In between that room and the rest was this massive curtain that hung there. It was thick. It was huge. And it reminded people that they were separated from God. Listen, it wasn't there for decoration. It was there to remind people that they were sinners and would not be allowed in the presence of God and be allowed to live. If they walked through that curtain, they would be struck down and would die immediately because God is holy and we are not. However, fast forward, when Jesus died, Scripture tells us that that curtain in the temple was ripped open. Nobody ripped it open except Jesus. When it was ripped open, he opened up a way for us to come before God. Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice that could actually atone for our sins. He was like us in our humanity, so he could be a substitute, but he never sinned, which means God could accept that sacrifice because God only accepts a perfect sacrifice. And so his death opened up access to the presence of God for everyone who is covered with his blood. See, sinners deserve to be destroyed in God's presence, but through Jesus Sinners are cleansed from their sin and welcomed into God's presence. I love how the book of Hebrews puts it. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning of verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's why we pray through the gospel, continuous praying through the gospel. There's no other way to enter God's presence except through the blood of Jesus. Now, what about that part of that command, the without ceasing part? What 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 does that mean? I mean, doesn't Paul know that we have to eat and we have to go to work and we have to sleep and we have to talk to other people, not just God all the time. We we have to have conversations. Doesn't Paul know that? Of course he knew that he had to do all of those things, too what does this mean well when the bible says we are to pray without ceasing i think it means this that we are to live in a continual attitude of prayer which often turns into actual words of prayer being spoken to god whether quietly in our hearts or out loud with our voices to to, to be always in prayer means that we are always living with this attitude of prayer we'll talk about what that looks like in a moment but then when we live with that attitude, we're often going to find ourselves actually speaking to God, whether it's quietly in our hearts or whether we're actually using our lips and our tongues and our voices and we're, we're, we're speaking aloud prayers to God. Well, how, what's this continual attitude of prayer? Well, think about it this way. The heartbeat of prayer is the heartbeat of dependence upon God. Every time we go to God in prayer, whether we say these words or not, we are saying, I need you. If you didn't think you needed God, you would never pray to God. You never would. Prayer is this this incredible act of faith. You're speaking to someone you can't see, and you're basically saying, I need you. I need you. Even when you're not asking for something. Even when you're not asking for help. Even if you're just praising God, it's still a declaration of dependence upon God. You need Him to be those things that you're praising Him for. And so to pray without ceasing means to live every minute of the day with a very real awareness that God is real, that He is there, and that you desperately need Him. And here's the thing. When you live with that kind of attitude toward God, you'll find yourself very often speaking to God about what's going on in your life. Praising God for who He is, confessing your sin to Him, thanking Him for the blessings He bestows upon you, and asking Him to help you honor Him with all of your decisions and thoughts and words and actions. I heard it explained this way. To pray continuously means you have a conversation with God that starts when you wake up and ends when you go to bed and gets interrupted a lot throughout the day. I like that a lot. It's just continual conversation where we really never say amen. It's just that things in life, we've got to go to work, we've got to go to school, we've got we to have a conversation, we've got to cook a meal, we've got to do whatever we've got to do. It, that conversation is always going on. It just gets interrupted all throughout the day. And since prayer is only possible through the gospel, here's the thing then constant prayer is a constant meditation upon and dependence upon and declaration of Jesus. And if we live that way, we will no doubt shine the gospel light of Jesus brightly to the world around us. If we're always living in this state of prayer, which means we're always declaring our dependence upon God and we're always thinking about Jesus because it's only through Him that we can pray, then our lives are going to be telling the world that Jesus is the one that we worship. Which is hopefully our goal in life above anything else. Martin Luther said this, As it is the business of tailors to make clothes and of cobblers to mend shoes, so it is the business of Christians to pray. So we worship God with a heart of continuous rejoicing in the gospel. We worship God with a heart of continuous praying through the gospel. Third, we worship God with a heart of continuous thanksgiving for the gospel. We worship God with with a heart of continuous thanksgiving for the gospel. The next command we see here is to give thanks in all circumstances. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. If the command to rejoice seemed like a hard command to obey, and if the pray without ceasing seems like an impossible command to obey, we might be tempted to say that the command to give thanks in all circumstances seems like an absurd command to obey. I mean, just think about it. Let's be real about our lives. Some days go by and it seems like nothing happens that we would want to give thanks for and certainly there are moments in the day where we look around and say nothing to be thankful for here and yet the command says to give thanks in all circumstances now how do we do that well notice first that the command is not to give thanks for all circumstances but to give thanks in all circumstances We give thanks in all circumstances. Paul's not living in some fantasy world where nothing bad ever happens. We've already mentioned some of the deep trials that the Apostle Paul has walked through. We've already seen that the Thessalonians are facing affliction and suffering, yet Paul says, give thanks in all circumstances. And the only way you can give thanks is if you have something to be thankful for. Right? I mean, you can't give thanks if there's nothing to be thankful for. I mean, to give thanks means that you are being thankful for something. So even in the midst of all the situations of life, There must be something that we can give thanks for or else God wouldn't give the command to give thanks in all circumstances. Church, what is it that we always have to be thankful for? Even if every single thing in our lives gets ripped away from us, our home, our family, our possessions, our health, we can join Job in saying, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Why? Because we've been eternally rescued from our sin and every bad circumstance in this life in comparison to the blessing of forgiveness and the hope of everlasting life with God. It does. It doesn't matter what you're going through, Christian. You can always give thanks for the gospel of Jesus. After seven and a half chapters of explaining the gospel of Jesus to the Romans, Paul wrote these words in chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing. With the glory that is to be revealed to us. When we live with that attitude, we will give thanks in all circumstances. And then I'm going to skip ahead a little bit, but going on to verses 28 through 30, he said this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That is describing our lives and what's coming for us in the future as Christians. That's our lives, past, present, and future, as followers of Jesus. We have something to give thanks for, church. And now I'm going to skip ahead to verses 37 through 39. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord, church. We have reason to give thanks in all circumstances. While your circumstances may not evoke thanksgiving, your eternal position as a child of God by the grace of God through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross must always evoke thanksgiving, not simply in our hearts, but flowing from our hearts into outward expressions of thanks to the God who has rescued us from our sin and who is sovereign over the circumstances of all of our lives. I agree with these words that I read. Someone said this, He who can say Amen to the will of God in his heart will be able to say Hallelujah also. In other words, if we trust that God is sovereign over all and can say Amen to His plan and will for our lives, then we will also be able to say Hallelujah in every circumstance of life. In fact, Romans chapter 1 verse 21 points to a lack of thanksgiving actually as evidence that someone is under the wrath of God. One of the evidences that someone doesn't belong to God is that they don't live with a thanksgiving, with thanksgiving to God. How unbecoming is it then for those who have been rescued from eternal wrath to fail to give thanks to the God of salvation who is saving you and keeping you and working in all of your circumstances to bring about the completion of your salvation. Someone else said it this way. Now, I found these words um, uh, very encouraging. It is often difficult to see the brighter side of a particular trial. But if it is our deep conviction that God is over all and that his hand is in the particular tribulation we are undergoing, then we cannot but recognize his goodness and make our act of thanksgiving. You see, it comes back to who's on the throne of our hearts. It comes back to who we're worshiping. If we are worshiping God, if our hearts and minds are centered upon Him, then we're not going to be able to help but see His hand in the workings of our life, knowing that He is working for the eternal good of those whom He is saving. And then we won't be able to help but give thanks. Imagine that someone gave you a house. I mean, this person handed you the keys to a house. Now, I'm not talking about a fixer-upper. All right? So like, where you go, thanks, I appreciate it. Now I've got the rest of my life uh, of work ahead of me trying to get this thing livable. I mean, they hand you a brand new house. It's the, it's the, it's the house of your dreams. It's, it's wh- exactly what you want. It's yours. Now imagine that whenever that person came over for dinner in your new home, you spent most of the time complaining. Complaining about work or complaining about politics or complaining about the kids or complaining that this person didn't also give you a new car to go with the house or complaining about the future maintenance of that house. How disrespectful... That would be right. That would be so disrespectful. And yet I think we do that. I'm just going to go ahead and say it just for myself and maybe for you all the time. I feel like we do that all the time with God. He lives in us through through his spirit. And so he's always with us. In other words, he's always over for dinner. All right. He's always with us. He's given us eternal life at the cost of his own son and promised to see us through to the end, which he's going to talk about in verse 23 of this passage. And yet, how much complaining and griping does God hear come out of our mouths each day compared to how much thanksgiving? Not to mention all of the complaints that are in our hearts and minds that never actually make it out of our mouths, right? And remember, remember, He hears and knows it all. It's be a short verse, but it's very convicting. May we, as followers of Jesus, say with the psalmist, in any and every circumstance, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. So we worship God with a heart of continuous rejoicing in the gospel, with a heart of continuous praying through the gospel, and with a heart of continuous thanksgiving for the gospel. But I think verse 19 leads us to one more way that that we need to worship God with hearts transformed by the gospel. And, and really, this last one that we're going to look at, we're going to spend a lot, a lot of time on it, but, but this last one that we're going to look at, it, it, it's really the attitude of the heart that serves as the foundation for obeying the commands to rejoice and pray and give thanks. We've got to get this fourth one right if we're going to get the first three right. So number four, worship God with a heart of continuous submission because of the gospel. Worship God with a heart of continuous submission because of the gospel. Now, when, when you see the word submission, think worship. That's what worship is. I'm submitting to this one, whoever it is we're worshiping, as, as supreme, as over me, as worthy of all of my life and affection and devotion. When you see the word submission, think worship. But it is the submission to the will of God. The end of verse 18 says, For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. First, I want you to notice that rejoicing and praying and giving me thanks is God's will for you. Here's what that means. It means it's not optional. These commands are not optional. It's God's will. If you love God, you will obey His commands. You'll submit to His rule and authority in your life. Now, Paul's used this phrase already. He said, for this is the will of God, back in chapter 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. The commands to rejoice and pray and give thanks are just as much God's will as the command to abstain from lust and adultery and homosexuality. Which means to fail to live, listen to this church, To fail to live with rejoicing and prayerfulness and thanksgiving is just as much an offense to God as someone who is engaging in sexually immoral behavior. God looks at your and my complaining attitude the same way He would look at a porn addict. The exact same way. This is where we like to say, well, at least I don't do this or at least I don't do that. And God says, you complain pretty much all day today. How often is you giving thanks for... Me sacrificing my son for you on the cross. He sees us the same way. It's sin. But here's the good news, church. The fact that these things are God's will also means that he will and actually already has given you the ability to obey his commands. He doesn't command what he does not give you the ability to obey you see, the beauty of the gospel of Jesus, the new covenant that God makes with his people, is that he gives us, through his gospel, hearts of flesh in place of our hearts of stone. In other words, that means he transforms our hearts so that we can live in obedience to his commands. And that's exactly what the end of verse 18 tells us to do. Though you don't see the word gospel or new covenant or hearts of flesh here at the end of verse 18, but you know what you do see? Three very important words. In Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. This is God's will in Christ Jesus for you. Those words ought to make us shout for joy. This isn't God's will for us, but we can't do it because our hearts are, 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 are dead in sin. This is God's will for us in Christ Jesus who has come to rescue us from our sins. God's will is that we will be transformed by the gospel of Christ, his death and resurrection. And because of this gospel transformation, we would have the ability and the motivation and the greatest reason ever to worship God with hearts of continuous rejoicing and praying and thanksgiving. You see, it's in Christ. Which means He's saved us from our inability to obey these commands. Which means we can obey these commands. But it's all because of Jesus. It's all through the Gospel. It could be that there's someone here today and maybe you say, I can't obey these commands. I understand that it's through Jesus, but do do you see that I'm not in Christ? You see, I'm dead in my sin. I'm lost in my sin. I I don't know what it means to have my sin forgiven. I'm living under the weight and the guilt of my sin, not the freedom from sin. And if that's you today, then, then you need to trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross. He has opened up a new and living way for you to have access to God the Father. And if you will trust in Him, He will rescue you from your sin. And then you can rejoice always and pray without ceasing and give thanks in all circumstances and submit to God's will for your life in Christ Jesus. Now, if you have believed in Jesus for salvation, then you've got no excuse. You've got no excuse. Instead, what you have is the privilege, the privilege of rejoicing and praying and giving thanks and living in submission to God's will. You have the privilege of continually reading about the gospel, studying the gospel and growing deeper in your understanding of the gospel so that you will be continually awestruck by the gospel. And when we live that way, we won't be able to help but rejoice and pray and give thanks and submit to God's will always. And what's the result of this type of lifestyle, church? What will happen when God's people live this way? We will adorn the gospel of Jesus, and God will use our submissive rejoicing and praying and thanksgiving to draw people to believe in Jesus for salvation. I want to close with one of my favorite stories from the life of Paul. In Acts chapter 16, we find Paul and Silas in a Philippian jail, having been stripped of their clothes, beaten with many blows, and locked up in the stocks. And what do we find them doing to pass the time? We find this verse. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. They weren't complaining. They weren't griping. They weren't moaning. They weren't groaning. They were praying and they were singing hymns to God. And you know what the rest of that verse says? The prisoners were listening. The prisoners were listening. Church, the world is listening to us and they need to see us. They need to hear us worshiping God with our lives. I know there are bad things happening in our world. I know regardless of where you stand on the political spectrum, there are lots of things to complain about. I know life throws curveballs and we walk through difficult circumstances in life. But friends, the world is listening to how we respond. They are reading what we post. They are watching how we live. And they need to know that there is a Savior who has paid the price for the evil in our hearts and who has conquered our greatest enemy and who is reigning over all that is going on in our world and who is coming back one day to rescue those who belong to Him and to destroy the wicked. But they're not going to be left. To Jesus, If all they hear from us is griping and complaining and moaning and groaning and a failure to communicate constantly with God through prayer, they will think if we live that way, they will think that our God is our circumstances or our politics or our health or our wealth or our job or our nation or our government or our family or our comfort or our convenience or whatever it is that we're complaining about. They'll think that's our God. However, if we live with hearts that continuously rejoice and pray and give thanks to God out of gospel submission to God, then here's what's going to happen. The light of Jesus is going to shine brightly out into the dark world around us. And they're going to see that Jesus Christ is the one that we worship. So let me ask you this. Who wants to be on a team that celebrates a victory by going to the locker room complaining about everything that went wrong? Nobody wants to join that team. So church... The victory is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. And let's let the world know in such a way that they want to join us in our victory celebration. A healthy church is filled with members who worship God with hearts transformed by the gospel. Church, let's be that church. Would you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, Your Word rings true. Your Word rings true. And so would You help us obey Would you help us obey God? God, would you help us? Thank you for Jesus who transforms our hearts and fills our hearts with joy, opens up a way for us to communicate with you always and gives us reason to give thanks in every circumstance of life. Thank you for Jesus who gives us a heart of flesh and places the heart of stone so that we can submit to your will Every moment of every day. In Jesus' name we pray.